1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. How does a pilot see the cities of the world? Unlike residents who live there full-time or tourists who travel once and perhaps never again, pilots are brief but regular visitors to the great hubs of the globe. In Imagine a City, a Pilot's Journey Across the Urban World, Mark Van Honecker helps to give us an answer. In his book, Mark charts his flights all over the globe to cities like Hong Kong, Jeddah, Rio, Cape Town, Sapporo, Delhi, and many more. But the book also regularly returns to his hometown, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, near the state border with New York. Mark Van Hocker is a commercial airline pilot and writer, the author of the international bestseller, Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot and How to Land a Plane. He is also a regular contributor to the New York Times and a columnist for the Financial Times. Born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, he trained as a historian and worked in business before starting his flight training in Britain in 2001. He now flies the Boeing 77 Dreamliner from London to cities all over the world. Today, Mark and I talk about his travels from the relatively small town of Pittsfield to the snowy streets of Sapporo. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian Review Books podcast today. You know, I want to start with that kind of observation I kind of hinted at the beginning, which is to ask, you know, how different is it to travel to a city as a pilot instead of, you know, as a tourist, as a visitor? Does the experience of traveling to a city for a short period, perhaps many, many times, give you a different perspective of what these places are like?
1: Well, well, thank you, Nicholas. It's a it's a real pleasure to be joining you. Um, you know that, that experience of going to cities as a pilot is is re- is really um, something that even when I was a kid dreaming of becoming a pilot um, and of flying off to the cities, I, I found on my on my you know illuminated globe in my childhood bedroom, you know, is something that I really couldn't imagine. Um, I had no idea that you would that I would eventually have a sense of cities um, that was built up, as you say, in these kind of short. Um, but, but repetitive visits that, that go on um, over years and years and, and are really very different from the way that I experience cities um, as a, as an ordinary traveler and then later as a business traveler. I mean if you if you go to a city as a tourist, um, you know if you if you travel to um, to Sydney or Hong Kong or, or London, um, you may depending on, on where you live, um, think that that's the only time in your life you'll, you'll ever go there and you'll have a, a list of things that you want to do. Um, you'll have recommendations from friends or from the internet and, and, you know, you'll want to make the most of your time there. You'll, you'll want to get up, um, you know, um, maybe not even have a sleep after your flight and, and just head out and start doing things. Uh, and, it, or if you're a business traveler, uh, I worked, uh, in a, in a management consultancy for many years before I, um, uh, became a pilot. Uh, You know, you have meetings to go to, and then in the evenings, perhaps you have um, socializing, which is, um, you know, another kind of meeting. um, And you may just have a few minutes or a few hours here or there um, in order to see the city. Um, Whereas when we come to a city as a pilot, uh, our work is finished when we arrive there, and and we have this... um, you know, not only do we have the free time um, to to um, to explore a city, especially when you're a long haul pilot and you have longer stays of a day or two or even three days, but you also have the sense that you're going to come back there. Um, you might even you you might land in a city and know already that you're going to be back there um, a few weeks later. The first time I ever went to Beijing, uh, some of my colleagues were making a journey up to to see the Great Wall, um, to see one of the sections nearest to Beijing, and uh, you know obviously I I was keen to join them. I'd never been uh, to China before. I'd never um, seen the Great Wall, Um, but I knew I was coming back to Beijing just a few weeks later. So I thought, oh, on this first day, I'm just going to walk around the city and um, and explore it on the you know on the uh, on the metro and 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 just kind of wander and get lost, knowing that I can do those big those sort of big name sites another time. Um, it, it's a really, it, it's a really extraordinary way to, to get to know a city and you end up doing little errands in cities that you, uh, that you might've done at home, but you but become a slight adventure um uh, when you do them in another place, I remember once I, uh, my watch strap was broken, and I was going to São Paulo the week later. A week later, and I thought, "Oh well, I'll just I'll just get it replaced in São Paulo," which, you know, turned out to be a a, a memorable morning in, in a city that, uh, in in a way, that few others might might have a sense of. it. Right. It seems like it's
0: is that kind of, I guess, strange regularity. Um, the, 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 at least the stories like that, like the one where said, where you go to where you go to São Paulo to replace a wrist strap.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, um, Los Angeles is a city that, um, you know, I grew up uh, on the East Coast of the US, uh, or or near the East Coast, um, as you said, and Los Angeles was this kind of magical name growing up, you know, I think, um, California has a certain, you know, appeal, um, especially perhaps back then, um, to people on the East Coast, and I kind of, I couldn't really imagine I would ever go to Los Angeles. Um, uh, And then, I started flying there, uh, when I became a pilot on the 747 and, um, when I first started flying on the 747, there were three 747s a day going from Heathrow to, to Los Angeles. So it was, a, you know, it was a really common route for us to fly. Um, and, you know, you start developing these routines there, you have cafes you like, you have, um, you know, hikes you like to do. And, um, and, and, and you know, after a while, maybe four or five years into my career on the 747, it's the, uh, we stopped flying to Los Angeles on that airplane, so I didn't go. I didn't go again for a few years, and, and when I came back after that period, um, when when it restarted flights uh, to Los Angeles on the 747, I, I looked in my logbook to see how many times I'd been there before, and I thought, oh, you know, maybe I've been there 20 or 25 times, and it was close to 50, and now it's close to 70. I mean, it, it's a it's a, it's a remarkable sensation to have of a city which isn't your own. Um, you know, often I'll meet people from, from, you know, any of the cities I love best, um, Los Angeles, Vancouver, uh, Mexico city. And, and, uh, if I meet them, you know, if they're a friend of a friend, I have this sense that I, that we have their city in common, that I'm, you know, almost that, that I'm from there in some sense, but of course that's not true. I you know, I have that feeling about so many cities. It can't be true of any of them. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you even find yourself, um, I don't know if you've had that experience in your hometown, um, where visitors or tourists are walking more slowly or a little unsure where, where of where they're going, and you kind of pass them at, at speed because you know where you're going and you know you just want to get past um, down the street to, to where, whatever it is your, your day holds. And you know, I end up walking like that in cities past tourists, even though those, those cities aren't my own either. Uh, it's a very strange, it's a very strange sense of. Um, of a place and you know and i i certainly wouldn't argue that it's a deeper sense um but it's definitely a different or unique one um clearly clearly it's um it's almost a false sense of intimacy of uh, you know in, in a place to to think you know it when of course uh people who are from there obviously have a much deeper sense of it um but it's it's unique and it's something i, I really tried to capture in in, in imagine a city i really wanted to relate uh to people who, who aren't air crews, um, what it is like to, to get this sense of, of of the whole world, um, uh, this, this incredibly urban planet, uh, you know, especially now that, you know, more than half of us um, live in cities. And I think by 2050, two thirds of us will. Um, and this, the sense of an urban planet, which, which, um, is, is really, um, increasingly just a, another way of saying human civilization um, is something that I, I, I wanted to, to try to capture, both from above, of course, because pilots see it from above, um, but also from the streets after we land.
0: So you mentioned growing up on the East Coast. Um, you know, And if there's one place that pops up, I think probably the most in your book, and it's completely understandable why, it's, it's your hometown of Pittsfield um, in Western Mass. I should note, that I myself have ties to Western Mass. My family um, lived in
1: Amherst, so I went to Western oh, Mass uh, a lot okay. growing up. Um, oh, I believe uh, it's uh, what—that's
0: like an hour and a half's drive from Pittsfield, I believe.
1: Uh, uh, um, Amherst is about an hour and a quarter. Yeah, I actually went to Amherst yeah. College, so I, I know the area. Um, I know the area very well, on the, and the road. <laughs> oh, really? We should. Okay, then we should we should talk yeah. about that offline. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> you know, but you know, but, but let's let's talk about kind of Pittsfield. You know, why why did you kind of bring up? um that hometown, which which I'm you know, is probably a lot smaller than a lot of the than most of the cities you talk about in your book. Why does why did you kind of give Pittsfield kind of almost kind of prime place throughout
1: the many chapters in your book? So uh imagine a city started out as a travelogue, um which is really what's at the heart of it. Um it, it's this story of a pilot's experience of uh, of the world of cities um in a way that perhaps nobody else in history has ever had um, you know, that experience that pilots now have, but it also became um, almost um, as if of its own will, it became a, a memoir as well. Um, and I found that I couldn't really write about cities uh, without talking about my first city, because I found that, you know, so often when I was in these far off places, I was thinking back to my hometown um, and, you know, in Pittsfield is um it's a small city, about 45,000 people now. Um, but it's a very, um, you know, it's a unique place in some ways. Um, I obviously think it's, it's, uh, it's special and unique and yet and yeah, in other ways it's, uh, it has been subjected to a lot of the forces that a lot of, um, cities in, in the U S and in Western Europe have, have struggled with as well in terms, in terms of globalization and, um, the decline of its factories. Um, and, and so in that sense, it is, um, you know it is a, a kind of model for other people's hometowns but but more more importantly I, I think you know growing up there i wanted to i really wanted to leave i, I wanted to to become a pilot and to fly off to the places that uh um, that i saw in my you know my my childhood bedroom had an illuminated globe and i had a lot of model airplanes and you know it's you know, <laughs> no one would be so no one who knew no one who knew me then is surprised i became a pilot and and, and a long-haul pilot um, but yet, the, you know, the more I've seen these cities um, that are so far from Pittsfield, and as I've gotten older, frankly as well, I think um, it's it's more and more, um, you know, that inclination to look back at your own story and your own places um, is um, is something that grows stronger and stronger, and and really informs this the book. Um, you know, I go back to Pittsfield all the time, um, as often as I can. My parents aren't there anymore, but uh, various friends of my parents are there, and and some of my childhood friends are still there. And uh, I think Terry Pratchett has a, a line about, uh, you know, why do we go away? Why do we travel? And the answer is, so we can come back again. Uh, we come back, and we're you know we're not the same as we were when we left. And and Pittsfield has had that role in my life, and. You know the way in which um, the way in which a, a hometown is always with you, almost like a first language. Especially, um, it's especially compelling to me in the sense that Pittsburgh is a small city, but you know many of the ones I go to um, for work are, are are large. I mean, they're some of the largest cities in the world. If you go to Delhi or Lagos um, or Tokyo or or Beijing uh, or Sao Paulo or Mexico City, or um, and so that that sense that that a, that a first city is like has a you know, is always with you, even in the largest ones. And that it's something that you come back to again and again, um, both, uh, imaginatively and, and, and in physically, if you can, um, throughout your life, uh, is really the, the sort of, the structure of the book. And it's, it's a quality that I, that I really wanted to capture in it. Um, I think, um, you know, that there's all those lines. I think Thomas Wolfe, you know, had his book, you can't, you can never go home again. You can't go home again. Um, maybe you can't but um but i've certainly tried and and i've and i've done so from from journeys that are as far reaching as anyone can make today
0: i i'd like to shift from talking about your hometown to talking about my hometown if you will allow me to um so i i i'm from hong kong and hong kong does feature um a little bit in your book you do have one kind of part of one chapter kind of talking about about hong kong um uh i think you you If I get the dates right, you probably weren't a pilot at the time, but I always remember flying into Hong Kong through the old airport of Kai Tak, um, right in the center of town, um, which uh, was closed in 98, I believe. And while they probably had to close it, it was a really difficult airport to fly into, I'm sure, if you were a pilot. It does feel like, you know, something was lost and kind of missing, losing that kind of flight over the city and having the planes be right over um right over the the center of kowloon um but i hoped if i might can ask you um as 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 a pilot that flew into hong kong and as someone that does feature hong kong or at least for a little bit in your book kind of what was your experience of hong kong like as a pilot
1: so I, um, I I flew to Kaitech once as a passenger um, and I was uh, I was over the moon I'm, I'm so glad I was able to do it um, in some ways I'm more I'm happier I was able to do it as a passenger rather than a pilot because I was able to really you know sit back and enjoy the views rather than than have to um, concentrate on the flying um, but it, it was just uh, you know, a monumental experience of, of both flying and of cities. Um, there's, uh, there, there was no approach like that as far as I know, uh, or or there isn't one anywhere else like it. Um, but Hong Kong did become a very special place to me as a pilot because it it was actually the destination of my first uh, flight on the 747, um, which was in December of 2007. So, uh, you know, you do a lot of your training in the in, in a flight simulator, but eventually uh, there's a first flight, and mine was mine was to Hong Kong, and we left uh, we left London on a on a cold and wet evening, and uh, and you know had that very very long flight, um, you know all across you uh, know northern Europe and Russia and, and China, and, and made our approach to Hong Kong. I, I was I had never flown long haul before; I'd only done European flights, and I was really struck by that sense that we. Um, you know we took off you know in, in darkness from london and then had the entire day the entire following day in the air and by the time we were landing in hong kong it was it was it was getting it was dark again um and i kind of thought i had that kind of striking sensation of a day having having vanished somehow and to have two nights in such close succession um especially in december of course um, when they're when they're so short uh when the nights are so long and the days are so short. Um, and it, it, was a, it was a momentous journey for other reasons, because uh, when I was a kid growing up in Pittsfield, I had a, a pen pal from Hong Kong. Um, uh, her name is Lily, and uh, she grew up on, uh, on Chung Chao, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, on the, on the island. Mm. Um, and, that, and that island actually has a beacon on it, uh, which, has its, which is named for the island. Um, and that beacon formed part of the approach to Hong Kong. Uh, to the new airport, obviously, and so I had this very strange sensation of descending from London in my was I forty? No, I guess I was late thirties then. Uh, and but you know, decades after I last um, sent a letter to my pen pal or received one uh, through the mail slot of that of that you know red brick house in Pittsfield, and suddenly I'm flying a seven forty seven over uh, a beacon named for the island on which my pen pal uh, lived and maybe still lives. Um, and then uh, we made that long. Um, that long pattern around and over the city to to, to landing at the new airport, um, and of course Hong Kong is just um, uh, you know. And I remember I remember on the flight in, it, it was cloudy in Hong Kong, but eventually we came out below um, the clouds and had that this view of Hong Kong Island, and um, I mean it's just an extraordinary cityscape. There's really nothing else like it. Um, and and then landing and and kind of thinking like wow, you know I I I that i flew i just flew a 747 from ether to hong kong it, it was a kid's dream come true i mean it was literally my my dream that, that had come true uh i and i remember that flight you know i've, I've flown three types of aircraft now the um, the airbus a320 series the 747 and now the 787 but um you know and pilots have a lot of milestones you have our first solo our first instrument flight you know our first uh Many firsts, but um, that first flight to Hong Kong on the 747 is is definitely the highlight of my of my career, and probably a, like a top ten moment in my life <laughs> overall. I'd say. Uh, and then you know, Hong Kong is a, is a city that I, um, you know, got to, to know many times when I when I flew there uh, on on subsequent visits, uh, and it comes into imagine a city in the sense that into this new book um, because you know I'm. When I was a kid growing up in Pittsfield, skyscrapers were a really big, um, literally, uh, uh, a feature of my sense of cities. Um, Boston was our nearest city, but New York, well, Boston was our nearest big city. Um, And New York was uh, a little bit farther um, and in a slightly different direction. Uh, And, of course, uh, you know, that's when you would, we would drive there or we take the train, um, or we would take a, like a bus for a school trip or something, that sense of a, of skyscrapers in the distance. And then suddenly being among them and kind of looking up and I can almost, I, I can remember being in the backseat of my parents' car going to Boston and suddenly kind of looking up, um, from the backseat, just, to, you know, kind of straining to see the skyscrapers all around us. Um, you know, and, and I, I think many people who haven't been, uh, to East Asia, might think that the most skyscraper t- city uh, by far is New York, but of course, um, that's not true. Um, um, when I last calculated the numbers a couple of years ago, when I was finishing um, *Imagine a City*, I think I think 150 meters is one of the cutoffs that's used for skyscrapers. As a, I mean, it's one of the the, the higher cutoffs that you use when you count a skyline. And um, I think Hong Kong had around 500 buildings, um, of that height or higher. Um, and, and Shenzhen was actually second and, and New York was a very distant third. Um, and so that the sense that, you know, Tokyo, I, I think Tokyo is still the ultimate city to me, um, in some ways, and it's obviously it's bigger than Hong Kong, but, but certainly in that to that, in that childlike in a child's eyes, uh, where a city is, is defined by its skyline, Hong Kong is, is, uh, you know, is the definitive city. And of course, it also combines, um, you know, I'm often struck by how often um, the cities that people love combine mountains and water. Um, it's just a really common combination. <laughs> um, if you think of uh, Vancouver or uh, Rio or, uh, or Cape Town or Los Angeles or, or, or Nice, or, you know, it's just a very evocative um, uh, natural setting for cities. Um and uh, and Hong Kong in, 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 you know exemplifies that as well. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's a you know it's a very um, uh, compelling compelling cityscape. And you know of course in my first days there, I, I I did I did those obvious things. I took the Star Ferry and 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 walked around and went up a few skyscrapers and um, you know went up uh, took the tram up Victoria Peak. Uh, but, um, you know, I've had some other explorations to some of the other islands, and, and uh, it's, uh, it's a really it's, – it's, it's an astonishing place. I, I hope I have a chance to go there many more times.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
1: Right, I'll do Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty-one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Yeah, for me, like Hong Kong was it I think you mentioned kind of Hong Kong and New York. I mean, New York is one of the few cities in the world that actually kind of reminds me of Hong Kong due to was it I you walk outside in New York and there are skyscrapers everywhere and I'm like, oh it's like home. <laughs> As I think yeah, skyscrapers yeah. are 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 more fewer and far further fewer and further between I think in other cities. But you mentioned Japan and I I Japan pops up many times um in your book, both Sapporo um but also Tokyo, uh and it, and it pops up kind of throughout the whole book, kind of throughout from from beginning to end. Um and in kind of our conversations before this interview, you talked about japan's importance as one of the key themes in in your book. I wonder if you might talk a bit more about your experiences in Japan and why it has been so important to you um in your in your life experience
1: yes uh, so when i was in when I was seventeen, i think um i I had a chance to spend a summer in Japan uh, and living with a Japanese host family, um, and and that was uh, you know that was uh, you know a bit of a stretch uh, financially. I um, I had to sort of save up some of my own money for my paper my paper in my me and my parents weren't quite sure we could, we could swing it, but we did, they did. And, um, and I had this summer uh, in Kanazawa on the West coast of Japan. And that trip was, was incredibly important to me for a lot of reasons. I, I had never been to, to Asia before. Um, and, um, that that and it was even though we were living with host families and uh, you know it was a kind of a supervised trip it felt like an adventure which which set the tone for for further adventures and and really opened me up to the to the wider world in a way that that no other journey I'd made ever had um, and. You know, on that we we stayed in Tokyo for a few days at the start of the trip, and then um, at the end of the trip uh, went to Kyoto and um, and again back to Tokyo. And I had I had never really understood. Again, you know, I was you know talking about New York being the the sort of model city. You know, I I kind of assumed New York was the biggest city in the world, and then I um, and then you go to Tokyo and you realize that. It is. It is on a different scale, even than New York. I, I think its metro area is probably twice the population of New York um, now. I think it's, it's thirty-seven million people or something, which is basically Spain. I mean, it's basically all of Spain in one city. Um, and you know, its transit maps and its kind of endless cityscape or are seem like a, a, of, of a different order. Um, to, or they did then to me, and they they still do to me. Uh, and then, so Japan became this kind of touchstone for me, and. Uh, when I was in college um, at Amherst, which I mean the reason I went to Amherst was because their Japanese language program was so strong and and their um, ties to um to university in kyoto were were um, were so old and and, and ongoing. Um, and And then after that, uh, you know Japanese stayed with me uh, as a as a sort of hobby and interest. And uh, when I worked in the business world because I had um some some language skills, um, I, I got to go to Japan a number of times for, for work, um, and those stories of being a, a business person in Japan, suddenly <laughs> in young adulthood, and kind of being astonished at the, uh, you know, at the fact that I was in a hotel room in in, um, in Shinjuku, um, about to go to a meeting, and not quite feeling like like the adult I probably appeared to be, um, was a, you know forms part of uh, Imagine a city as well. Um, and then, of course, uh, a few years later, I, I, I started going back there uh, uh, as a pilot. Uh, so that first flight uh, to um, to Narita on, on a seven forty seven was was just just an extraordinary experience. I mean, um, to fly back to that to that country that had meant so much to me when I was young, in a pilot, having um, had a couple of different careers in between that didn't quite work out. Um, was was an extraordinary experience. Um, was really, you know, a very emotional one, and that um, that f- uh, flight, to, uh, you know, a flight from London to to Tokyo is actually the architecture of of Skyfaring, of my first book. Um, it's kind of shaped around that flight very loosely, um, in a way that meant a lot. And then. Um, You know, and now I've gone back there a number of times on the seven eight seven, and flown to um, Haneda for the first time as well, um, having been to Narita many, many times. And on one of those trips, uh, I I had a chance to go to Sapporo uh, in uh, um, on on Hokkaido, Uh, and I'd never been there before. But uh, but snow has, you know, Pittsfield, as as you'll know from from Western Massachusetts, you know, it's a pretty snowy place. uh and snow meant a lot to me when I was a kid i mean it means a lot to every kid i think in, in you know if you if, like ski or sled or whatever but for me i was always um you know I, I didn't always like school very much and that sense that you would wake up one morning and not only would the world be physically transformed in this really beautiful way but you also wouldn't have to go to school i mean it was just um you know it's just an extraordinary um you know it was it was it was it was a, it was a my greatest joys of of um, my school years involved not going to school because it was a snow day. Um, and as an aside, I think that's going to fade a little bit as a phenomenon because of course, now that a lot of schools are, are able to run online um, from the pandemic era. Um, I think snow days might become a thing of the past, which is, which is terrible news, um, for today's kids. But, um, yeah, and so the so in Pittsfield, you know, is a very snowy place um, compared to most of the U.S. or, or most of Western Europe, um, and yeah. uh, you know, snow has a, a very important role in Japanese culture. But I had never actually seen that because, yeah, you know, it, it very rarely snows in Tokyo. And then when I was in Kanazawa, it was in the summer, so I didn't see the the snow there. So a chance to see um, a city much larger than Pittsfield and even snowier than Pittsfield was, uh, was high on my list. So I did, I, I went up to Sapporo during a trip to Tokyo and had a few days in, in, um, one of the snowiest cities in the world. Um, certainly the, the snowiest large city, I think, uh, it's fair to say, uh, you know, when you see those tables of the snowiest cities in the world, I mean, some, some very quickly you move into cities you've never heard of, or most people have never heard of. Um, and so you have, you want to set a minimum population size, I guess, and and uh, and I think Sapporo is is uh, would be the the snowiest large city by any measure, um, and I, and so I, I wandered around and and saw you know it's just spent a whole day walking around and um, having ramen and hot chocolate and um, you know just exploring. Uh, you know a sort of full-sized japanese version of pittsfield in some ways um and 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 wondering about um you know whenever i passed um kids being pulled on a on a a sled along the sidewalk wondering how how snow would affect their sense of cities and and of their home and you know once if you grow up in sapporo everywhere you go is going to be less snowy basically and and so it it was a chance to think about what um you know what cities might um how, how snow affected my sense of my childhood and of my first city and how and how it might affect um, people who who live in Sapporo or who grew up there
0: so i i I kind of want to take another big picture view now although I'm sure there are there are many stories in your book that help illustrate this point you know air travel is one of those standardized global systems you know they they keep the world running often in the background you note I think, this this pops up. I remember this pops up definitely once in your book where you're flying into India and and um, you're both communicating in the kind of standard English, but not just English, but the, the standard clipped English um, jargon of of pilots and air traffic controllers. Um, so I mean, so air travel is is standardized, is globalized. Everyone kind of speaks the same language, understands the same things. You know, and I guess does that give um, you know, those who work in this space, whether they're pilots or aircrew or traffic controllers, or anyone, you know, does, how does that kind of give them a different perspective on, I guess, on the world of globalization, of what countries are and I guess all of that?
1: Yeah, that, that, that's such an interesting question to me. I, I mean, I, I often I often wonder when we look back on the 20th century, how, you know, obviously, we'll we'll um, we'll think of computers as being um you know, um, a civilization alterated altering um, event. Um, But, you know, air travel, I wonder, I almost wonder if that would be the more interesting thing in some ways. I mean, I mean, if computers have come about first and aviation second, we would think of, you know, oh, well, it's great to be able to email people, but how much better to actually be able to go and, and, and and see, you know, and meet them in person across the world. Uh, Maybe that's just my bias towards, towards aviation, but, but clearly aviation, um, has furthered globalization um and also embodies it and and, and depends on it and you know you, i often think of the, the cargo containers that are loaded onto planes that contain um you know luggage or or freight you know and those containers kind of you know they're 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 standardized by definition you know they they have to be standardized because they're moving around the world and and things get put in them and taken out of them and and they have to be able to move freely and um another example I often think of is the, you know, the engineers who work on planes. So the, um, you know, each long haul flight is met by an engineer who is almost certainly from the country you're in, but has done this kind of standardized Boeing or Airbus course and, and, you know, qualification in order to, in order to, um, you know to repair and um complete checks on an airliner that is moving around the world and so that everyone is working with this kind of standard um knowledge set and yet and yet of course when the plane leaves they all go home um, and they go home to they go back to homes and to lives that are kind of beyond my imagining in some ways once i was on a flight to istanbul um speaking of snow and and, it, and we couldn't land in istanbul because there, there was a, a snowstorm there um so we flew to ankara instead and of course, we weren't meant to be in Ankara that night. Uh, there wasn't; it wasn't a scheduled arrival there. So they had to get an engineer out and you know, and other staff um, in the middle of the night um, to come meet our plane. And and I kind of, I you know, the engine this engineer came out. It was a it was a really really rainy night. It was raining in Ankara and snowing in Istanbul. Um, and so the engineer comes on board, and he's he was you know soaked, and obviously had been phoned phoned from at home. And I I kind of thought you know. I, I tried to imagine. I didn't ask him about this, but you know, I want. I was trying to imagine what his home was like and what he'd had for dinner, and um, if you know, were did he have kids? Were they going to go to school the next day? What would they be learning in school? Uh, and, and yet, um, we you know, we all have these. Uh, um, we all come to aviation with with such difference, and yet we work. Uh, in this atmosphere and this environment, which is hot, you know, so heavily regulated and standardized. And, um, in some ways, maybe it's a good model for globalization. Um, you know, I often, you know, you, you, like any traveler, I have one of those travel adapters that has, you know, nine different pins on it to use in different countries. And, um, or you hear about, uh, a train line that's being built from one country to another, but there's a problem because they have to switch gauge when they cross the border. Because, you know, 150 years ago, somebody made a decision about the railway gauge that's now, you know, echoing down the down the ages. Um, and aviation um, is a, is um, I think in many ways a lovely example of of that, um, you know, of what we can do as a species and um, of how we're able to work together despite our differences.
0: Yeah, no that that comment on the gh thing reminds me of the of the funny road constructors that you have to do between the border between Hong Kong and mainland China because we drive on different sides of the road.
1: Oh of course. Yeah.
0: So the lanes have to switch sides as as, as cars cross the border. Um, oh my god, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. Uh, so I I do I do have one final question and you know it's sure. COVID COVID only pops up once at the very end of your book. It's a very small story among the many other stories that you have but obviously you know the pandemic has uh definitely put a pause on people's travel um depending on where you were based the pause was longer than others i think 4 days after this conversation i will be on my first flight since march 2020 um yeah. but for but for you personally you know how has the pandemic and everything that you had to do how, how, how has the pandemic maybe changed your view on flying and being a pilot?
1: So uh, for me, the pandemic, um, you know, it, it began um, with, a, with, a, with a halt to flying, which lasted maybe three or four weeks. I, I didn't fly anywhere. Um, but very quickly after that, um, I, I started flying again. And, um, and those flights were, they didn't have, initially they didn't have a lot of passengers on them, but they had a lot of freight um, and, um, I was, you know, I, I think may, people f- maybe don't think about air freight so much, or they think if they, if they think about it at all, they think it's going on dedicated cargo planes, um, which obviously kept flying, but actually a lot of cargo goes on regular commercial airliners, um, a- along with your baggage. And when, when the pandemic hit, uh, a lot of those passenger flights weren't going. So the ones that did remain, the capacity on the ones that did remain became much more valuable. Um, and of course, a lot of the cargo we were, we were carrying was, um, you know, was medical equipment or, uh, you know, personal protection equipment, that kind of thing. And so it was a very, it felt very, um, um, sobering to walk through these airports that were completely shuttered. You know, the shops were, um, just the gates were down on the shops and then you'd walk to a plane, um, and, and yet the plane would be, would be the in terms of weight would be almost full um, even though there were no passengers on board um, or very few passengers. And that was, I mean, it felt, um, I mean, it felt use, I guess I felt useful in some way that I um, um, hadn't, um, you know, quite appreciated before in some ways. Um, you know, I, th- I think I read in, in the Economist um, not long ago that the, the value you know, air freight takes about thirty percent of the world's um, trade by value. I mean, obviously, very heavy things, big things, they go by ship, but a lot of things go by plane, especially small, valuable things, and so, um, or or perishable things. Um, and so that was uh, quite an interesting experience. Um, you know, when we went to cities. Um, in some cities, we couldn't even leave um, our, our hotel because local regulations prohibited it. And in some places, we couldn't even leave our rooms. Uh, we would be given a key card that only opened the door once, um, and and so um, you know you'd go into the room and you could get room service and do exercise on your, you know, on whatever exercise app you're using. Um, and of course, um, I was able to to do some work on the book then, which was just finishing up um and so it was you know an utterly unique time i mean i i started flying um i was doing my flight training course my initial one during that 9- when not when nine eleven 11 happened um and i think my colleagues and i on that course we thought that uh we would never see uh aviation disrupted and again in the way that we had at that, at that period we kind of thought you know um well that was clearly a you know, a a crisis in in aviation terms of, that was, you know, once in a century or something. But of course um, the COVID one was in many ways, um, a deeper, a deeper um, uh, crisis for, for anyone who works in travel. And of course it it wasn't just, um, you know, air travel. It was, um, you know, the entire travel industry was all around the world was, was really devastated. I think, I think there's like three or 400 million people who work in travel or transport, um, you know, writ large, and and maybe sixty or seventy million of them lost their jobs. When I, I went to Delhi in uh, April, um, a journey I wrote about for the Financial Times, and it was the I'd been to Delhi a number of times during the pandemic, but this was my first trip there after we were able after it was un- unlocked essentially, and we were able to to move around the city. And, you know, air crews have websites where we share uh, information on, you know, if you're in the city, do this tour, you want to do this food tour, this guide will help you. Um, so I went to that section for Delhi and and I started clicking on these links and they were all, the links were all dead. The, all those businesses were gone. It was really shocking. Um, and to realize um, the role, the economic um, impact of aviation and 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 the personal impact uh, um, of the pandemic on um on people who uh, you know who who work and travel and, and trade you know in the travel industry all around the world. Um, so hopefully we're entering a, a brighter phase um, for travel and those uh, whose whose lives depend on it.
0: So I think that's a good place to interview with Mark Van honiker author of *Imagine a City: A Pilot's Journey Across the Urban World*. Mark, I actually have two final questions for you. Sure. Which yeah. are? Uh, which are? Uh, where can people find your work and what may be next for you what may be the next project uh,
1: so uh, imagine a city uh, yeah. is uh, it's available uh, in English now there's a US and a UK edition um, and uh, if you search my name uh, mark van Honeker you'll find my website and, and links there uh, I'm on Twitter at at um, Um, markv747 you won't be surprised to hear is my twitter handle i have not updated that to uh, the 787 so it's markv747 and i'm always happy to hear from readers and passengers um, and i get a lot of window seat pictures people take which i'm always happy to get Um, and uh, imagine city will actually be coming out in japanese and in simplified chinese um, i think in the next year or so so um uh, hopefully uh, some of your listeners will be able to read it um, in their first language uh, in terms of what's next for me um, I don't have a new book on the uh, on the I haven't I don't have a, a new book on, on the cards yet but uh, I'm continuing with my Financial Times column and occasional uh, New York Times contributions um, and uh, particularly the the Financial Times column which is aviation focused uh, if any listeners have uh have ideas for what they'd like to see me write about, um, I'm always happy to, um, to hear those ideas. And many of my columns will come from suggestions from readers. So um, uh, I look forward to hearing from from uh, anyone who's listening to this who has any, um, any thoughts on, on flying or cities or, uh, or travel.
0: So, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Me or BePox all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned to know who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Mark, for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Nicholas. I really, I really enjoyed this. Thank you.